The vision received was that of blood cells traveling throughout the body, supplying the much-needed oxygen and other nutrients to the differing members of the body to fulfill their purpose. Once the blood cells are spent, they must return back to the heart to be refilled before being sent out again and fulfill their purpose. Good morning, Saints. Good morning. Actually, it's good afternoon. Yes, it's good afternoon. Ah, I feel like this message is where I was right there in praise and worship. So if you have where if you saw me where I was in praise and worship, that's kind of where I feel right now. How many of you heard the term "damaged goods"? You have. Uh, okay, we're gonna start with the back, Sister Aubrey. What is your interpretation of damaged goods? How do you how do you know that term? Okay, so damaged goods for in her ideas about retail. It's uh, it's about I guess items of clothing that may be torn or shredded or something like that. So they're damaged goods. Beside that interpretation, does anybody have any other interpretation for damaged goods? Okay. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. So she comes from the educational setting, and it's about using that label to refer to people that are damaged, that are they're they're, 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 they're just damaged, like a psychotic break. They're just broken, and they'll forever be broken, and there's nothing to do with them or much to do with them. Okay. That's another one. Is there anyone who comes with another kind of idea about that term, damaged goods? Sister Althea. Um, a lot of times in the process of moving, you know, one person ought to transport an item from the house to the Okay. So talking about uh, items of kind of kind of not retail per se, but just items that you know while you were moving they became damaged in the move. Anyone else have anything different than what has just been kind of mentioned here? So, Rihanna, damaged goods. Right? Damaged goods. Um, I don't know. I think spiritually, how some people are damaged. A lot of people are damaged goods, so to speak. Like how so? Give me an example. Well, people who are with God, a lot of people are just living life. Uh-huh. A lot of people are broken and damaged and hurt and Okay. That's okay, okay. So, so people that are broken, people that are without the Lord. Yeah. Got you, got you, got you. Okay. So, oh, we have more. More hands. No, I'm just thinking sometimes you have um, cleaning tools or something cut in your house. Uh-huh. Yourself. Okay. Canned goods, damaged of canned goods. We know we've, all of us have had a canned good drop and it got dented or a gallon of milk or orange juice and it got dented and God forbid a hole happened and then you got to scrounge around and try to save your orange juice. Sister Cher, I think you had your hand up. Okay. 
Uh-huh. So they came to church and they were damaged in church, you mean? Okay, okay. That's another way we can see that. Sure, sure. So, Brother Julian? Also, uh, one thing that comes to mind is there's always a, uh, a great upon value the very beginning. Place on that good. It's called good for a reason. So there's something about that that makes it valuable. <coughs> it does its damage. It doesn't mean it's no longer valuable, but it just means it's less valuable than that particular state. So oftentimes when you get marked out, understanding that people will product, they'll purchase it, they'll go home and they'll mix it up or restore it. Right. Right. Okay. So he's talking about um, when something is damaged, and maybe uh, uh, they need to do a little fixing on it, and because they had to do a little fixing on it, and it wasn't brand new. It's kind of refurbished, and that was kind of the connotation that I caught, came up with this morning, would you rather buy something new or would you rather buy something refurbished? You'd rather get it new. Because if you get it refurbished, there's always that doubt in your mind, oh, it's going to break down sooner than a brand new one. I mean, that's how I am. I want technology. If I'm going to get the best that I can afford, give it to me new. Don't give me to refurbish. All right. I, a, lot of, a lot of what you mentioned, little elements of different things that all of you mentioned is kind of where I'm trying to get at today. And I'm, th I'm trying to get at this term damaged goods on a more personal level. Um, kind of what uh, Sister Tammy brought forth. Uh, using it as a derogatory term against other people. I didn't hear anybody talk about how they might have felt like they were damaged goods. That's kind of where my message is going when you feel like you're damaged goods and you're not good enough. Um, let me see if I can come up with an example. An example could be uh, someone gets taken advantage of in their adolescence as a teenager. They have a sexual relationship. Who's considered the one who has damaged goods? Usually the woman. Oh, she's already been used. She's already been taken. They don't think nothing about the man. Or maybe you were in a relationship of marriage and you got divorced. And you may carry on this sentiment that I'm damaged goods. You may think other people see you as damaged goods. You've already had a relationship. You've already had a, a thing. And so, no, I'd, I'd rather have someone who hasn't, you know, some, I, I want a virgin or and, and that's wholesome in and of itself. Um, but sometimes, because of experiences, traumatic events that Sister Tammy brought forth, we sometimes develop a psyche that we're damaged. We're not good enough. And so that's kind of where I want to go with today's uh, a message. So if you can keep that in mind as we go over some scriptures. And we're going to start in Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4 through 6. We could read all 63 verses, but we're not going to do that. Uh, because I think they're, the whole 63 verses are important. But this is God speaking to Israel. And he tells them, as for your nativity, the day you were born, your navel cord 
was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor were you wrapped in swaddling clothes. There was no eye that pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into an open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. This is him describing what happened when a person was born and they were born and sort of just thrown out there. They were born and they were not wanted. They were not, you know, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger with a mother looking over them. They weren't held close to their, to the breast. They were rejected. They were thrown aside. They were still in their own blood. Not cleansed at all. They were loathed. They were, they were hated. They were rejected. But when God saw that image, when God saw that particular person or individual or people, <clears throat> He didn't reject them. He said, when I passed by you, I saw you struggling in your own blood. And I see that metaphorically, allegorically, as you are struggling in your own sin, in your own dirtiness, in your own filth. But I saw you, God said. I saw you in your blood and I said to you in your blood, live! Yes, I said to you in your blood, live! I didn't want you to die. I didn't want you to stay in a state of rejection. I didn't want you to stay in a state of loneliness. I didn't want you to stay in that open field all by your lonesome self to die. I wanted you to live. And so I read these words and I, like I was in worship today, am just in awe of God's love for us, for you, for me, me personally. Because I read these scriptures and I realize I was not anything to behold. I wasn't attractive. I'm not talking physically. I'm talking deep within myself. There was a wrongness. There was an evil. There was a wickedness. There was a darkness that I don't know or fully understand why he would look at me or at us. And I'm, I'm asking you to consider this. Why he would even look at us and then say live while we were in that state. What did he see? When we read Romans chapter 7. Paul gives us a really good idea of what this state is like. He says, we know that the law is spiritual in verse 14 of chapter 7. He says, but I'm carnal. I'm sold under sin. For what am I doing? I don't understand. And what I will to do, that thing I do not practice. But what I hate that's the thing that I do. He's describing himself. 
wanting to do the things that are right and struggling, struggling, immensely struggling to do them and he keeps finding himself doing the thing that he hates. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. I recognize within myself that I'm doing the wrong thing. It's not what I want to do, but I keep finding myself doing it. I'm agreeing that the law is good. The things spoken of in the law have no other gods before you. Don't bow down before anyone else and worship anyone else. Don't make any idols. Honor your father and mother. All the things that we know of, not just the Ten Commandments, but all the law. It's good. I know it's good. Excuse me. But now it is no longer I who do it, he says. It is sin that dwells in me. He recognizes there's something in him that is causing him to fall, that is causing him to be barred, be fallen. For I know that in me, listen to what he says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. The will to, the, the, the desire to want to do the right thing, the good thing, the pure thing, the holy thing, the thing that is in the law, it, it's there, it's present, but I don't know how to perform it. What is that good? I don't find a way to be able to do that. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that is what I practice. You see, he's sold under sin. He recognizes he is in bondage. In a sinful state. And that's what I depict that Ezekiel uh, verses 4 through 6 that we read earlier. It is that baby that is in a fallen, sinful state of his own blood, his own doing. And who's going to clean him? Everybody's rejected him. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law. Paul discovered The evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to what? The inward man. In my spirit, I agree with the law. But there's something at work in me. And it's called sin. There's this evil that is present in me. Not in my inward man, but in my flesh. When I walk in the flesh... That's when I start doing things that I will really will not to do. So I see, he says, I see another law in my members, my physical members, and it's warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body? 
And he's got an answer in Romans chapter 8, but that's really not the gist of the message. It's just to get us an understanding of what our state was. We were fallen, we were decaying, we were dying. And right now, today, it doesn't matter whether you're young, it doesn't matter whether you're old, we are all infected with this alien presence. I'm not talking about aliens from another planet. There's this alien entity working in us, and it's called sin. It's evil. And it's not the devil. It's infected all our conscious and visible aspects, our body and our mind. And we are wholly not worthy. We're not worthy. Not even a little bit. We are altogether guilty. There is no good. There is nothing in us that is valuable. We are corrupt altogether. Within ourselves, is there not constant bickering and fighting and disagreement and second-guessing ourselves? and uncertainty, and insecurity? Is there anyone here willing to admit that, yeah, yeah, I go through that? And some of you may say, yeah, on a daily basis, I go through that. Day by day, every single one of us is getting older. And day by day, every single one of us is near to our day of death. Bishop? He's not exempt. He's got to go see the doctor to check something out. There's physical symptoms trying to arise up in his body. Elder, every elder in this church, we're all in this state. Doctor back there is in this state. Any teachers in the house? Yeah, you're all in that state. Second guessing, wondering, did I do this right? Did I do that wrong? Wondering am I going to have the backup of, of, of my assistant principal if I say this or if I do this? Constantly thinking and second guessing because we're, we're not sure. We're not sure if we're going to get the backing that we need, you know, in our school. And so that happens. We got a marketer back there. I'm sure not every single day that he's gone into his job that he feels at the end of the day that he did everything absolutely right. I'm sure he doesn't think himself to be perfect in the way that he handled a situation or the way that he handled a person. I'm sure there have been times where he may have second-guessed and said, God, I could have, I should have said it, I could have done it this way. It's natural for all of us to have these thoughts and these wars that go on in our mind. Even Paul had them. The great apostle wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. The stay-at-home mom. Hi there. I'm sure she is gone a day, two days, maybe a whole week wondering, how do I deal with this child so that I can get the change that I want? And am I going to last in order to do it, whatever it is that I need to do? I know you're going through that because I lived with one that went through it. It's not the easiest thing in the world to put your foot down and leave it down. To get tired. 
not just physically, but mentally tired and drained, wrestling, wrestling, wrestling with behaviors and thoughts and ideas. And I say all that trying to hit every single person because we are truly all unworthy. We're damaged goods. We're damaged goods. It says on Isaiah 64, 6, we are all like an unclean thing. And all of our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. We can't get around that fact. It is a truth. It is a state of our nature prior to coming to Jesus. And what just so befuddles me is that this paradox remains for all of us. We are still chosen by God. He's looked at us in our state, in our fallen affliction, in our second-guessing, in our doubting, in our double-mindedness, in our insecurities, in our fighting and bickering amongst ourselves, amongst our spouses, amongst our children. He sees it all. Amongst all the sinful decisions and behaviors that we've done in the past, He's seen it all. In our unworthiness, yet we are chosen. What a mystery. What a paradox. Why? Why? If I got to choose, would, did we not all agree that if you were going to choose a, and buy a brand new camera, you're going to buy a new, are you not? Or you're going to get it refurbished. New Mac, Apple, New or refurbished? No, you're always going to want it new. And yet God did not choose the new. He chose the damaged good. I'm going to try to take you through the scriptures, so just follow along with me character by character. He did this with this young, arrogant dreamer. This dreamer thought, had a dream. Do you, does any of you have control over your dreams? Like literally have control over your dreams? Okay. So this dreamer didn't have control over dreams just like you and I dreamt that he was going to be the top dog. And all of his family was going to bow before him. That's what he dreamt. And he shared it. With his siblings. He was the youngest at the time. Out of 11. He was the youngest at the time. He shared with them. And, and, and they all got mad at him. Like it's his fault he had a dream. And then he had another dream. And the stars and the moon. And they all bowed down to him. And he shared it with his mom and dad. And they got mad at him. Like as if he had control over his dream. 
Not like he had any understanding of what the dream meant. He's just kind of sharing it. Hey, I had this dream. What do you think? They all get mad at him. Young, arrogant dreamer. Yet he was chosen. He wasn't perfect. Maybe he should have chosen better who he said his dream to. I don't know. But he was chosen. God goes a step further in the next example that I have for you. He chooses a murderer. A murderer! He murdered someone and buried him in the sands of Egypt to hide it. Who am I talking about? Moses. Who was I talking about before? I forgot to ask. Joe, okay, good. You're with me. Great. All right. He chooses a murderer, presents himself in the flame of a burning bush, and as he's talking with Moses, Moses says to God, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Just look at Moses' response. Who am I? He says, Moses answered and said to him as he's dialoguing, but, 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 but suppose that they will not believe me. Suppose that they will not listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. The murder. Don't forget, he was a murderer. And he could, God continues the dialogue with him, trying to convince him. Yes, you. I want you. And he says, but Moses, and then Moses says, it all, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Listen to his response. He's even telling God, but God, don't you see me? I don't speak well. I'm not eloquent. I, you got the wrong guy here. What's the matter with you? You, you made a mistake. You're choosing the wrong guy. Who am I to do what you're telling me to do? And then he says, but he said, oh my Lord. After but after he shows him to put your staff down, it changes to a snake, grab the snake's tail, and it becomes a staff again. After he shows him, hey, put your, put your hand in your bosom and then bring it out and it's all withered, it's all leprous, and then put it back in again and then and it's changed right before his eyes. This is what Moses says. Oh my Lord. Please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Send somebody else. He just changed his staff to a snake and brought it back. He just changed his hand and he's still not convinced. This is Moses, a murderer, that is saying to God, God, you've made a big mistake. You've got the wrong guy. I am not your man. Just look at the characters. He chooses next a small a man from a small, inconsequential family. This man, after he was chosen by God, said, Am I not a Benjamite? I'm of the smallest tribes of Israel. And my family is the least of the families of the tribe of Benjamin. Why then do you speak to me like this? Who's that? Eh. <laughs> Ooh. Who am I? Who am I talking about? No, come on now. No, not Saul either. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, Saul. Yeah, Saul. 
Saul says, I'm a Benjamite. I'm of the smallest tribes. I'm the least of the tribe of Benjamin. That's when he was chosen as king. And he seemed to be pretty humble. But, but his psyche is that of a man that believes, that does not believe in himself, that does not believe that he is capable. Just like Moses. Guys, we battle with this psyche almost every day. The belief that we are actually capable, conditioned, by the Holy Ghost that's in us. Because without the Holy Ghost, it's none, 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 none of this is possible. But you hear the psyche of men, oh, who am I? You got the wrong guy. He picks another man. Trying to, I guess, outdo himself. And he tells his servant, the prophet, don't look at the appearance. I don't, I, the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. And he went through brother after brother after brother after brother. That, no, 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 no. Lord says none of these men. These are, this is all you have? He says, well, no, we have our youngest. He's keeping the sheep. That was not a high honor. Okay? It's not like you were a big deal. You kept the sheep. You walked them around. And you rescued them when they fell into a hole. That's not a big deal. You were not a big guy for doing that. You were not impressive. You were not famous because you kept sheep. Okay? And he says, furthermore, this guy, when he comes in, he's ready. He's, he's young with bright eyes and he's, he's, he's good looking. Arise, anoint him, for he is the one. Who am I speaking of? David. David. Now, David did not have the pedigree of a warrior champion like we knew he came to be. He's just a shepherd boy. It's not like he came from a long line of a, a, a family of descendants who were generals and warriors of armies and nations. No. He was the son of Jesse. Who's Jesse? He's, you see, you got that in your psyche. I, I come from, I, I'm not nobody. I mean, I am nobody. And I come from a family of nobodies. Lord, you got the wrong man. And the Lord tries to outdo himself with the next one. He comes from a family that is the weakest, and he says to him, I am the least again. He said, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And this man responds to him, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Who am I talking about? Thank you. Now you got it. Now you got it. Alright, Gideon. Gideon didn't think much of himself either. In his psyche, he's damaged goods. I don't have the capability to do what you're saying. And then God he, 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 God likes to amp up to make a point. Because the next person that he chooses is a harlot. God chooses a harlot 
Yes, God chose a harlot. And, and this harlot was from the Old Testament. But I'm only going to read to you the excerpts of this harlot in the New Testament. And tell me, tell me what, what, what you see in common. Okay, it says, By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe, but when she had received the spies with peace. It also says, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. What do you see in common in those two passages? Huh? Justified? No, I'm not really focusing on that. She believed, she received, yeah, yeah, yeah. How did they identify her? They could have just said Rahab. No! The harlot Rahab. Rahab the harlot. Why did they, why did they leave that out? That was so significant that God chose a harlot to do his will. To become a part of the lineage of who? David. And in turn, Jesus. God did that? No, God, you made a mistake. How could you choose a harlot to get into the line of Jesus Christ? He's the most pure holy one. That's what he did. What did he do with the disciples? Who were the disciples? Fishermen. Common folk. Not rich people. Not even middle class. We're talking probably lower middle class, if anything. They were just fishermen. What do fishermen do? They get out on a boat without their shirts on and they get smelly with the fish. And they come home sweaty, stinking, and smelling like fish. And they don't have the same things that we have today. A nice shower, a nice tub, a nice, uh, uh, what is it? What do we use? A baby wash soap? Body soap? Body wash? They didn't have body wash. Alright? They didn't have the nice little scrunchie that we use for ourselves. But that's who Jesus chose. The common folk. Not rich, not notable, not strong, not famous. And you know how Peter referred to the wife? Anybody? Peter referred to the wife as the weaker vessel. But they have been chosen too. For Peter says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Even them, women, are chosen. Even though they're considered the weaker vessel. And so my message today is, if you are the type of person that deals and bouts with insecurities and doubts about yourself about maybe kind of wrestling with God about you you chose me what no me you're not a mistake do you hear that you are not a mistake and God did not make a mistake in choosing you he doesn't choose us because of our inherent value that's what you have to get out of your mind. The idea 
that yes, there actually is something good in you. No! You are wholly unworthy, and so am I. Come to accept that as the truth, and you realize that you are not saved because of any righteous works you did. You are saved solely by His grace. You are saved solely because of His mercy. That's all. That's all. He chooses us not because of our inherent value. He chooses us because His purpose and His will supersedes our unworthiness. That is awesome. That's why when I get into praise and worship and sometimes I'm tearing up, sometimes I'm crying, it's because I get this sense of overwhelming mercy and loving kindness that I don't know how to respond but by tears. It's so overwhelming to me because I know who I am outside of Him and yet He's still chosen me. He's still loving me. He's still showering loving kindness and mercy upon me that I just respond that way and I'm just so grateful and I'm so thankful. He chooses us because He knows by His foreknowledge not because He predestinates this, okay? He chooses us because He knows beforehand what we are going to do when He calls us. But notice out of all the examples I gave you, who ended up falling away? Saul, right? And Judas. Judas is a good example. I just didn't bring that one up, but Judas is a good example. Saul was still chosen, was he not? He was chosen as the first king of Israel. And he reigned for how many years? Forty years. He was still chosen. And so what I'm saying is, God not only chooses those whom he knows by his foreknowledge are going to respond to his calling, he also chooses those that he knows in the end will reject his calling. Wow! That is love without condition. I'm going to choose you even though I know you're going to reject me. I'm going to die for you and shed my blood for you even though I know that the multitude, the majority of all that have lived throughout history are going to reject me. That's love. That's love that makes you stand in awe and stand amazed because you are wholly unworthy and yet He's chosen you. He chooses us in spite of the fact that some of us are not going to respond to His calling. And yet He still chooses to give us the opportunity. That's why, I, don't, don't give me no what ifs about what if this person over there yonder in the jungles of Brazil or what if this person over there who was raised in the Buddhist family or the Hindu religion and blah, 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 blah. Listen, God has a way. And He knows by His foreknowledge who is going to respond to his calling? And he gives everybody a chance. I don't have to witness it for myself. I have to know the inherent goodness of my God, which is replete throughout the scriptures. It is not his will, it is not his heart, it is not desire that any man should what? Then he is going to make a way. He's going to give you an opportunity. And so the reason that I started this whole thing with why, if I am so unworthy, why, why, why is he still choosing me? 
Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Because the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. You see all of this, the, 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 the characters that I presented you as an example. Not many of them were wise according to the flesh, or mighty, or noble. No. God has chosen what? The foolish things of the world. He has purposely done that. You are in a good place if you know that God has chosen you. And yeah, you are foolish. And He's going to do something mighty and miraculous and beyond the comprehension of you or other men around you. He did that on purpose. God has chosen not only the foolish, but the weak things of the world. Yeah, that's why Gideon and David and, and all of them did not seem strong. Moses did not seem capable, did not have this, this, this belief in them, in and of themselves, about themselves. That's okay. You're in good company. It's not a mistake. You're not a mistake. The base things of the world and the things which are despised, that's who God has chosen. You may have come from a family that isn't a much of a family. You may have been raised wrong, mistreated throughout your life. And when you come to find out that you've been chosen, it's not a mistake. He's purposely done that. He doesn't go out for the rich and the famous of the world. He goes out for the downtrodden. He goes out for the broken and the contrite spirit. To them he will not despise. Because he's ready to bring to nothing the things that are in existence right now so that no flesh will glory in his presence. That was in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25-29. But my math in closing today is Deuteronomy 7, 7-9. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. Because in actuality, you were the least of all the peoples. He purposely did not choose you because you were the best of the bunch. He chose you because you were the least. And it says in verse 8, But because the Lord loves you, it wasn't because you had some inherent value. No. He chose to love you. And because He would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the, Pharaoh, from, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. To whom? To those who love Him and keep His commandments. That's what the Lord is looking for. That's why He's been so faithful. That's why He's been so merciful. That's why He loves you. Because He knows that when you came to Him, 
that you were going to respond and, and return to him with his calling with love that keeps his commandments. His part was to reach out to you when you were not even looking for him, when you were not even calling out for him, when you were in your darkness not even realizing that you were that you needed light. He came out of nowhere and brought forth light to give you the opportunity. And the reason why you're basking in mercy and loving kindness is because he loves you and you responded to him in kind. You're not a mistake. Get the stinking thinking out of your mental area. Throw it out. Throw it to the wayside. All of your doubts, all of your insecurities, all of the things that are weighing you down that are not allowing you to find your purpose in Him, to fulfill your purpose in Him, you need to get rid of it. Come to the grips with that, yes, you are unworthy. I am unworthy. Yet he loves me. And I have to accept that. Amen? Amen. The solitary. He says, can we expound on how he's setting the solitary in families? The solitary represent those that are rejected, those that are thrown by the wayside, those that have been forgotten. It, it doesn't matter whether you were raised in a family. You could have been raised in a family, and in that family you could have felt like you were not even part of this family. Something could have happened during your time that you were in family that could have made you feel like you were rejected, that you no longer belong in the family. I know in some sense I personally felt that way. I mean, I was raised by my mom. I didn't have my dad. He was far away. You guys all don't know that story. But when my sister was born, 15 years after I was born, I immediately started feeling like I was no longer part of the family. It was all about her. And I was pretty old that I, I, I mean, it wasn't like a young kid that was just jealous, you know, like some toddlers are that might be for a while. But I was pretty old, but I just had that sense that it, I'm kind of like a, uh, an appendage here that, that can be cut off and, and, and put away. That's kind of how I felt. And when I lost my mom, I not only lost my mom, I lost my sister, and where was I? Alone. I was what, he sets the solitary in family, I was in solitude. I was really alone. But he does that on purpose. He He is out there rescuing those that have been forgotten. He is out there rescuing those that have been rejected. Those that have been left to fend for themselves. He's out there all the while throughout every nation rescuing all of those people. Wanting to rescue all of those people because that's his heart. His heart and compassion is for those that everyone seems to have forgotten. Not That's why he's not going for the popular and the rich. I used to think, why can't we have more athletes and more Hollywood stars and more people that stand up for Jesus? Because they're not really for Jesus. They're not really about Jesus. They have everything. They have all that they need. He's not rescuing them. Who did he say? He came to save those that are found. He came to save those that are lost. And so he sets those that have been rejected into family. What family? The body of Christ. 
and amen for that. Because whether you had a natural family or not, you can, in Him, find family. A mother, a father, a brother, a sister. Find everything you need in Him. Amen? Thus is the ministry of our Father's heart through us. Our utmost desire is to be in the Father's heart, to know the Father's heart, and express the Father's heart to you. If you appreciate listening to this podcast and we're blessed, pass it along to someone else by text, email, or word of mouth in the hopes that they might be positively impacted as you were. If you are interested in supporting our efforts, we would ask you to consider the following. One, pray for us. Two, leave a positive rating or review with whomever you listen to our podcast with. And three, if you desire to contribute monetarily, you can do so at paypal.me slash J Ben Jesus or Cash App dollar sign J Ben Jesus or Venmo J Ben Jesus. That's J B E N J E S U S. God bless.